This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. It's no secret that Australia's economy, like that of the world, is in trouble at the moment. Last month, Scott Morrison announced that Australia will have a gas-led recovery. Here, natural gas is being rebranded as the safe fossil fuel because it emits only half the amount of CO2 than coal. Except it's not safe. It's well known that apart from the toxic chemicals injected into the ground for coal seam gas extraction, there is also the emissions of methane, which is 50 times more potent for the climate than carbon dioxide. Greenhouse gases to be emitted from fracking in the NT could potentially dwarf those of coal, Australia-wide. Onshore gas explorations in the NT could be seven times the amount of emissions from Hazelwood coal-fired power station, once the dirtiest in all the OECD countries. Please join us for this show where we will be heading deep into Arnhem Land to the Beedaloo Basin, the location in the Northern Territory where Origin and Santos have resumed exploration since a brief respite thanks to COVID. The Beedaloo Basin is a massive site of shale gas that if, tra- if tapped could seriously threaten Australia's ability to meet its commitments under Paris. For this, we will be speaking with the Protect Country Alliance, Dan Robbins. First up, and then Mimmel Land Management CEO Dominic Nichols, whose organisation works with the Bullman and Weemal communities to manage a vast territory according to Indigenous principles deep in Arnhem Land. They, will also, they also work to reduce climate emissions for Australia. Nichols has been an outspoken opponent of the Beedaloo Basin proposal, so stay tuned for that. We'll also be talking with Emily Townsend, a former employee of News Corp, that during the bushfires could not handle the dissonance between what the News Corp papers were writing and what she was experiencing with her own eyes, ears and lungs. She made the move to send an email to all 5,000 staff members about her thoughts on climate change and how the paper was not responding to it. But up now, we will be speaking with Protect Country Alliance's Dan Robbins. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Mission show, and this episode is the Battle of Beedaloo. Dan Robbins, spokesman for Protect Country Alliance, has been working for years in the Northern Territory to halt fracking. During that time, Protect Country Alliance has had some stunning victories, like the moratorium on CSG exploration in 2016. Yet the infinitely adaptable and relentless mining companies never cease seeking to extract gas, even as the economics become less and less viable. We're speaking via recorded Zoom chat with Dan about his work trying to halt the massive Beedaloo Basin project, the Northern Territory election, and how climate change is already impacting the NT. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Um, Can you just start by explaining exactly what the plans are for the Beedaloo Basin and who it is likely to impact? Yeah, so the Beedaloo Basin lies, I guess, in between Darwin and Alice Springs and is a large area that has a number of communities 
from Catherine down to Tennant Creek uh, that will be affected. There has been a number of companies very interested in the Beetaloo Basin um, over the last, I guess, 10 years who have found large amounts of shale gas deposits in that region. Uh, the main players that we've seen over the last five years have been Santos and Origin Energy, which I'm sure some of your listeners obviously heard of. And then we've got smaller players like Empire Energy, who their major investors are like Macquarie, Macquarie Bank and those guys. So Empire Energy have started drilling just in the last uh, week or so, about 85 kilometres from Baralula. Uh, they're doing some exploration drilling before the wet season kicks in and then they'll pack up their gear and come back next year. Origin Energy similarly have just fracked a well uh, about 48 kilometres from a town called Elliot, which is on the Stewart Highway. And they've also uh, found gas deposits and are going to release their data in the coming days, just how much gas and what kind of gas. And then they're going to pack up for the wet season also and come back to us in 2021. They're telling us at the moment they're no longer looking for methane. Uh, they're also looking for wet gases that are worth five times as much money. So that's propane, ethane, butane, things like that. And so they say that if they can find those wet gases, then they have a viable industry there in the Beetaloo Basin. However, there's countless indigenous communities in the Mudbara, Alawa, Jingaloo, a whole range of um, um, Aboriginal nations across that Beetaloo Basin who have been very vocal in their opposition to fracking for the best part of a decade and remain um, ready to resist these companies today. Right. And um, so there, there have been major concerns with coal seam gas extraction, uh, particularly with regards to what happened uh, or what will happen to the un underground aquifers and rivers in the area. Can you explain um, who's worried about this and, and, and a little bit about that? Yeah, so a lot of the concerns when I've met with um, native title holders and other pastoralists down in the Bitaloo Basin come from um, case studies in other parts of Australia where these same companies, Origin Energy, mostly in Queensland, and Santos, mostly in the Pilliga area of New South Wales, uh, have contaminated aquifers or contaminated water sources uh, during the exploration process. And so coal seam gas is uh, a slightly different uh, type of gas than we've got here. The shale gas deposits of the Northern Territory are a deeper deposit. So uh, they'll have to drill down some three kilometers uh, in order to get to the gas and then drill horizontally, sometimes for another three kilometers. Uh, in the other regions where we've seen water contamination from Santos in the Pilliga Forest, uh, it's shallower depths the drilling is happening. But similarly, they're going through uh, different for rock formations and through different uh, coal seams and then through the aquifers. And so just like we're concerned about the uh, Great Artesian Basin recharge area in the Pilliga Forest, here in the NT, 
if you look at the map of where they want these wells, they're almost directly above the biggest water sources, the groundwater sources that we have here in the NT. So one of them is the Tyndall Aquifer, uh, which feeds a whole range of um, indigenous communities, their fresh water sources, and also um, feeds agriculture and um, cattle industries, um, not just around the area where they'll be drilling near daily waters, but these underground water sources are also connected all the way up into the Catherine area and the Roper River area. So it's going to affect countless communities. Uh, I think there's about 20 different communities in the Beetaloo area that stand to be affected. And their main concern, which is very legitimate, is that water could be contaminated during the fracking process or during the exploration process where countless number of chemicals quite toxic chemicals uh, will be used in the drilling process and then stored in open air ponds uh, after the drilling process. So as I sit here in Darwin now waiting for the wet season to arrive, we're very concerned that there's these open air ponds full of water uh, after these fracking companies have gone and there might be large floods in those areas in the coming months ahead. Yeah, it is a worry. Um... So, so the situation as well for uh, the Beetaloo Basin is very fluid uh, and for coal seed gas in the NT in general. And so the uh, exploration of wells paused, as you said, for, for COVID, but then restarted just a few few weeks ago. Um, and there was also an election in the NT in, in August, um, remembering that the previous election uh, was one where, which introduced a moratorium on coal seam gas exploration. How much was CSG extraction an issue this time and, and why was the result different? Yeah, so we don't have coal seam gas per se in the territory, but you're right, we do have uh, shale gas deposits. And so in uh, the last election, uh, 2016, we saw the Labor government put a moratorium on all gas drilling uh, in the NT which was a shock to many of the big gas players like Origin and Santos, who basically had to halt all of their operations for a couple of years from 2016 to 2018, while there was a uh, independent scientific investigation and inquiry into fracking, which uh, came out with 135 recommendations uh, saying that there was real threats to, there could be real threats to water and, and uh, environments and communities and that to nullify these effects there was some very strong recommendations 135 of them that should be implemented uh, these recommendations uh, uh, haven't been acted on there's only about 55 of them that i think the labor party has acted upon however through the sheer uh, determination and power of these gas companies they have pushed the Labor Party over the last couple of years to to push on and, and, and allow drilling to happen. So in 2018, the Labor Party said, well, we think with these recommendations that the, the gas industry and the NT should go ahead. And so uh, that was a bit of a shock to communities who, who'd made it very clear they didn't want this. The inquiry found that a lot of communities were, were uh, very opposed. Uh, however, come to 2020, the Labor Party uh, basically went to the election saying, well, we still support gas. We think it can go ahead safely 
the recommendations haven't been acted on, but um, we're going to allow them to do their exploration drilling. And so uh, it was a very interesting election. And uh, there was a number of parties who called for a ban on fracking. And then the two major parties were basically saying they supported fracking and were happy for it to go ahead. And so what, how is Beedaloo being reported in the media in the NT? I, I noticed that there's been some quite slick media releases from Origin, um, and ha, but how would you rate the, the quality of the discussion sur surrounding exploration of the Beedaloo base? Yeah, that's a good question. During the election, uh, it became a major election issue. And uh, that was a, a surprising thing for myself because I thought during the time of a pandemic, it would be very hard to to get fracking uh, to the top of people's minds. However, when the pandemic hit, uh, Aboriginal communities around the Beedaloo Basin and down near Alice Springs also were very clearly speaking out saying, we do not want fly-in, fly-out workers coming from other states uh, where there's cases of COVID-19, um, driving their trucks, through our highway towns and, and near our communities, putting our health at risk. And so the Beedaloo Basin got back on the agenda in the media here in the NT and even around Australia. Uh, people asking, what is Origin Energy doing in the Beedaloo? Are they putting lives at risk? Are there native title holders who are speaking out? And the answer was yes. So Origin Energy quickly halted their operations again. This is a company who'd already been waiting for a number of years for the government to give them the green light. And then COVID hit and they once again halted all their operations. Since then, and during that time, um, during the election, as it was a big issue, the federal government stepped in and started to say that they wanted uh, the Beedaloo Basin to be one of the most important projects in Australia that they would uh, place above others and, and, and in a lot of ways underwrite and offer financial assistance to the NT government to get in there and start drilling. So it, it's, it's been a very kind of contentious few months with a lot of people in the NT expressing their concerns and opposition to, to fracking. And then the federal government uh, ministers like Angus Taylor and then the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, very clearly coming out, uh, standing alongside people like Andrew Liveris from the Economic Reconstruction Commission and saying, we need to get in there. We need to get gas out of the ground. And that is how we're going to recover from this economic crisis. And the, and the economics there are really, really interesting um, of, of gas extraction because the, the price of oil is obviously uh, tanked and that leaves so many of these, these projects in, in the US, for example, high and dry. So how can uh, these gas companies expect to ever make money out of a project uh, like Beedaloo? Yeah, that was the question we asked during the election. And there was a, a new political party that got on board and, and they were like a centre-right party called Territory Alliance. And they ran um, a huge campaign saying, this industry is not viable. Um, it's not uh, popular and it's not safe. And there was uh, a huge discussion about the viability of this industry. And you're right, we've seen record amounts of um, bankruptcies in the United States when it comes to um, shale gas and fracking. Uh, some of the largest fracking companies 
uh, like Schlumberger have, have basically said they're not going to do any more drilling in North America. And uh, companies like Origin Energy saw huge losses to their profits as the oil uh, price dropped, as you said. Um, when we asked government how they were going to go ahead with, why they would go ahead with such an industry that just seemed unviable, uh, they admitted there was big question marks there. Now, the industry has since come up with a new narrative, which is uh, the price of methane has obviously gone down. However, the price of other wet gases, such as propane, ethane and butane, uh, actually have gone up and there is a viable industry there if they can find those gases. So that's the current story. But uh, you're absolutely right. The questions around the viability of extracting methane and the safety of that have been big question marks here and in the NT and across Australia, I believe. And so I think there's still some, some way to go for these companies to really prove that they're even viable, but still the questions around whether they're safe or whether they actually have a social license are two questions they've failed to answer. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that, that narrative progresses. And, and finally, um, I, I imagine that many of our listeners would like to take action and help you and protect country Alliance. What's, what's the most, what's the best thing that they can do now? Yeah, at the moment, um, there's a range of communities kind of getting together and, and deciding how they're going to stop these companies. I know there was a big meeting of native title holders in daily waters in the middle of the Beetaloo basin just a number of weeks ago, uh, where people were getting together and deciding that they would set up their own new body, a prescribed body corporate to talk about uh, how they could stop these companies. So there are a range of things we can do to support communities in the Beetaloo Basin. And um, if people want to get along to the Protect Country NT website or Lock the Gate Alliance website, uh, they're doing some great work. And also down in Melbourne, uh, there's a group called Original Power. And I know um, they've probably spoken to you before, but yeah, you should really have a chat to those guys and support them as much as possible because they're doing some brilliant work um, across the NT at the moment. Yeah, and we'll put both those links on the uh, on the show notes after this. Thank you so much for your, for your time, Dan, and, and really good luck with the fight. No worries. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks very much.
I'm joined by Dominic Nichols. Dominic is a CEO of Mimal Land Management, an organisation that operates out of the heart of Arden Land in the Northern Territory, mainly with the Bullman and Weemal communities. They are involved in reducing climate change causing emissions through their land management techniques, equivalent to 11.2 million tonnes of greenhouse gases from wildfires across the Northern Territory each year. Yet despite their efforts, the new proposed gas industry in the NT would emit many times their reductions, effectively cancelling out all their work up to a hundredfold. The Mimal Land Management is a fascinating organisation in itself, working directly with traditional owners to manage the land according to the principles of those traditional owners. They are also a successful and sustainable business. Dominic is on this Zoom call, pre-recorded for the show. Dominic, thank you so much for taking the time. No worries, Kate. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's let's start by talking about your wonderful organisation itself. Uh, can you tell us about uh, about the the area that you manage? Where is it? Uh, the the different types of land, what animal or plant species you find in each, please. Yeah, so um, Bimal Land Management Aboriginal Corporation was set up in about 2015 and migrated the Northern Land Council and Bimal Rangers across to join their um, company in, in around 2017. And yeah, we manage an area in the sort of southern central Arnhem Land region. Um, so we're uh, bordered by... Uh, Wongalara, which is an Australian Wildlife Conservancy uh, property. Um, our neighbours include sort of Jarwin, um, Wadakan IPA, the Jelk IPA, the Arafurus Ranges and the Yugamungi Ranges. Um, so that's all sort of across Arnhem Land and they're our main partners that work together on our significant projects, particularly in terms of fire, you know, keeping weeds out and at bay across Arnhem Land. Um, and then we've all got joint challenges that we're working on around things like sort of freshwater systems and feral animals and, and protecting the, the sacred sites and cultural heritage sites that are scattered all across that landscape and in every component. And then we have a significant role in supporting um, the language and culture of the area. Um, those are things that are first and foremost in the minds of our landowners and things that are the highest priority. Um, so there's a lot of focus on supporting young people to learn more about um, the place, the ecology, the, the stories, and, and tied in with that is a lot of language um, and a lot of history. Um, it's a fairly complex environment, sort of just under sort of 20,000 square kilometres of largely savannah, um, woodlands, but we have some sort of escarpment area and some um, delta areas that feed into some of the bigger rivers there, the Wilton, uh, the Blythe and others, and also up into that Arafura Swamp region. So it's a pretty diverse um, space to work in uh, with a lot of challenges, um, and but a lot of amazing, really exceptional people in that space um, and some great ranges, which is awesome for us. That's fantastic. And, and, and why was it necessary to start the Mimal Land Management? Um, what, what, was, what was the motivation? So ranger programs in Mimal included, a lot of them started around 20 years ago and were one of the original sort of CDP work for the dog type programs. Um, but it was a very different structure to today. 
And they've been one of the few successful programs within that model where the, the linking something that is really important to people, that physical landscape um, and a job role of managing that landscape um, made it a, a successful project. People really have got in behind that. And the main reason was is that people needed to look after their country. You know, country was being um, deserted by people, not necessarily intentionally. There was a lot of um, uh, policies that forced people off country and encouraged people to move away and made it harder for people to manage their country. And so a space really opened up when landowners were looking for a group of, um, of local skilled people to work and look, help look after the land and manage that land. And that program over the last yeah, 15, 20 years has really, really developed and grown. So we've gone from a group of semi-skilled um, land rangers who all had probably exceptional sort of on-ground skills, um, but in the modern context of, of land management, um, those things didn't exist. Um, a lot of the technology that we use today didn't exist and a lot of the tools that we have now um, have been developed in response to what's needed in, in land management. Um, so really, that, that, that's, it's been a, a necessity in terms of fire was one of the big priorities for a lot of landowner groups. You know, the fire had been got out of control in a lot of areas, and Myanmar in particular, there was a, a component of our country that was under severe pressure from wildfires. And so there was a lot of impetus from landowners to task a group of people to get that under control. And that was the rangers as the one of the logical groups to do that. And yeah, and that's reaped rewards in both the fire management outcomes and the financial returns from, from undertaking that work. Oh, that's great. And, and just um, on that last point, so um, what's the business model for Mimal Land Management and, and how, how, how has it been so successful? So our core business is um, healthy country and healthy people. So it's focusing on what our landowners task us to prioritise in terms of looking after country, in terms of uh, maintaining um, places and people. Um, and so any activity we look at is centred around that. And, you know, and that includes people's desires for economic opportunities and for employment for themselves and for their um, children and future children. Um, so that what motivates us to undertake things like our Learning on Country program. We've you know, more recently um, stepped into the world of uh, buffalo mustering and, and harvesting. So we have a large feral animal population of buffaloes that historically has been harvested for over 35 years um, in the Bourbon area. Um, and as part of our long-term strategy around ferals, we've taken on a couple of licences in that area um, and that will help contribute to an overall reduction in feral animals along with other strategies that we develop over the next few years. Uh, so those, along with our uh, ordinary weeds, is about protecting one of your key ecological assets. If you keep the weeds out, then um, you fend off one of the biggest threats. Um, and fire is our biggest management tool, um, which is all about managing the health of the landscape using fire as a, as a tool. You know, some of the co-benefits of that is that if you have a good healthy fire regime or what our landowners would call a healthy fire regime, you actually have a significantly lower 
uh, greenhouse gas emissions than you would in, a, in, a, in an uncontrolled landscape. And the net result of that is, is an abatement, which we, as happenstance, have now have the methodologies and the science to turn that into carbon credits, which we then can sell. So the, the interesting thing of that, and that kind of really underpins the model, is that the issue of fire and managing fire was never about making money. You know, money is just one of those necessary evils that if you want to work, you need to pay people and you need equipment and you need some dogs to do that. And um, in the case of fire, there's a, a, a mechanism which enables us to do that and feed a whole lot of um, money back into the into the place and community. Fantastic. And and um, so, minimal land management has only been around for for about five years, but obviously, you're uh, involved with people that understand uh, the land on a much longer time scale than that. Has, is there a sense that the land is, is, is changing as a result of climate? Yeah, we've definitely, um, in the short time that I've been involved with MIMA and in the, in the land management space in the Territory um, for the last decade or so, there's been um, definitely an increased awareness and and an increased i guess questioning around you know what are we doing how are we um, going to manage some of these impacts yeah we're seeing sort of fire behavior and and um, yeah, um, impacts that um, people have identified they've never seen before they haven't mm. talked about before um there's impacts on inundation and in in water systems and up into places where you've got never had that before. There's more so on some of the coastal spaces impact on, on middens and various other um, archeological um, yeah. remnants. And so, and people are raising those as concerns more and more. So landowners are raising issues and what we're um, seeing and then what we're able to link more and more is that the climate impacts are central to some of those problems and and more importantly they're going to make them much much harder to manage and deal with in the future and in particular the you know the hotter drier issues the you know the water resources are only going to become more and more vital and they're only going to become more and more scarce and harder to predict and harder can, to control and manage and probably will be our one of our biggest threats to our systems is, is what happens with water and, and how when that water comes. Yeah, potentially airing a, a, another another threat. Um, so your um, the land that you manage uh, is could potentially overlap uh, with the proposed um, Beetaloo Basin exploration area. Um, what what is your um, reaction to that uh, to that um, to beginning? exploration again as they're doing um, a few weeks ago? Um, there's definitely real concerns around um, the impact of, of, of particularly of the fracking style of mining, um, partly because of a lot of the unknowns and the, mm. and the, the things that can't be predicted. Um, there's generally a strong resistance in, in our area to um, mining and mining applications. You know, landowners have pretty consistently said no for, for decades and I don't think that will, is likely to change in a hurry. Um, and what's really important for people to understand is that 
people have a very, very strong physical, social and spiritual connection to country. And it's often really underestimated um, how physical impacts on that country and really undermining in the integrity of that country. Um, that has a, a direct effect on people. Um, both in a strong social context in terms of people's responsibility for managing country and looking after country and making decisions around country, um, but also in their strong spiritual and physical connections to that country. So people take it very seriously when there's suggestions of, of physically impacting and, and mining country. Um, and water in particular has a, an extra level of significance for people and for good reason, it's, it's a key resource that we all need to survive. Um, and it's one that has a strong connection to, to every person. And so once again, systems and processes that really in, interfere with water systems uh, almost hit another level of, of concern and, and um, worry when it comes to, to what's going to happen. And people, um, as a result, are not supportive of that. They're not enthusiastic about um, those activities happening. Um, and then on top of that, there is a whole another conversation and case around sort of the economics of it and you know, is it really actually worth the risk and um, the potential negative effects um, for relatively few jobs and significant impact on the environment? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we'll We've been speaking with um, Dan Robbins, who's from uh, Protect Country Alliance, about that. So we, we're across the the economics or lack thereof of um, how fracking's going to work. I, I'm just finally. Um, I know that there'd be many listeners that would be really keen on on learning more about the work that you do. Where's the best place that they could do this? Um, through our website, you can get access to all our key documents, our strategic and long term plans see the great stories that um, have been going on, but also jump on um, Instagram and Facebook and follow the sort of real-time fun activities of the rangers and all the various things that they're get, getting up to. Um, we've got lots of surveys and um, various building and other works going on at the moment. And we're sort of standing by waiting for fires, which fortunately we've um, had relatively few of to deal with this year. And that's once again a helpful sort of byproduct of our fire, early season fire management systems. Great, great. Well, um, I'm, I've got my eye on the uh, news waiting for a chance where I can jump into a four-wheel drive and drive up there. Um, so hopefully we'll get another chance to, uh, to speak in person when, I'm, when that finally happens. Uh, and, yeah, we'll, we'll add um, a link to um, your, your website in the show notes. But thank you so much, Dominic, for coming on the show. No worries, good. Thanks for having me. Awesome. If you cast your mind back through COVID to the last calamity a year ago when the bushfires were raging, perhaps you can recall the furious debate that followed in the media. This debate was centered around the relationship between climate change and the fires. 
The right in Australia became hooked on one particular narrative that the fires were sparked by rogue arsonists, a theory soon disproved, but one that gathered momentum around the world. News Corp in particular championed any counter theory that the unique intensity of these fires were due to climate change. At first, it was that these fires were no more intense than previous years. Then it was the arsonists. And finally, the idea that greenies refusing to backburn had caused the fires in the first place. For one, News, News Corp employee, this was too much. This former commercial finance manager of financial operations, Emily Townsend, sent an email to all 5,000 News Corp employees before leaving the building for the last time. We are speaking with Emily on this pre-recorded call. Hello, Emily. How are you? Hi, Kurt. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good, good. Um, so I'm, I'm personally fascinated at the disconnect between the quality of journalism uh, and journalists at News Corp and the news and opinions that is produced. It seems to me that some of the best, most intelligent, most dynamic journalists in the country work for News Corp, yet the papers border often on political polemics. Did you sense this contradiction is experienced by other employees at, at the time and during the bushfires? Um, I think at the time, I can't really comment on on that too much because at the time, you know, I was working in finance and I, um, although I did support some of the editorial teams, I didn't um, really talk in detail about like how they felt about um, the reporting. Um, but since I sent my email, actually a number of a number of journalists reached out to me and and said that apparently I actually had a lot more support than I than I realized. Um, I was quite surprised at how many how many current employees actually reached out to me and said, congratulations, well done, and you're so brave, and, and that's amazing, and I wish I did that. Um, so it just shows that there is certainly, there is certainly that those feelings within the, within the building. Yeah, and so what was the, can you describe the mood um, in the News Corp offices during the bushfires? Um, I guess the mood was what's going on. Are we, is it, are we living through Armageddon? Um, you know, there was smoke even at points within the building. Um, you know, this is, this is terrible. Like this is very unprecedented. This is a whole unique experience for Sydney um, and Australia. Um, I, I don't know that there was, I mean, for me personally, I've tended to be more on the vocal side um, as an employee speaking out within, within you know, the group of my colleagues um, or former colleagues now um, about things that bothered me regarding the, um, the bushfires but, um, or climate change in general. And I mean, there's other things like racism and sexism as well. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that I. I mean, I wouldn't say that I had huge debates at the at the, at the time specifically. Great, and and so in the lead up to you sending that that fateful email, um, your your partner's farm was directly threatened by the bushfires, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. So for me, um, it was extra personal. Aside from the fact that your city is shrouded in smoke and. Um, and you can't, you know, you can't even see the CBD as you're driving over the bridge. Um, and you're just thinking how many billions of animals have been 
have been have been burned through this through this crisis. Um, it was extra personal because my partner's farm, the fires just kept, his part his farm is in the Hawkesbury, and um, and we we kept watching the fires just over months. The fires coming closer and closer and closer on the map, um, and just the scale of that kind of devastation just in that area in the Hawkesbury alone was you know quite a lot to deal with. Um, and he almost lost his farm. He had to go there and um, and and fight the fires with the fireies, and um, <clears throat> and you know that was quite dangerous. Um, luckily, he didn't. But most of most of the farm was burnt. Most of the land was burnt. Um, so all those animals that were living there, you know, were impacted. Um, and then you know, walking in through the doors of News Corp and seeing the headlines of um, you know pushing the agenda of we should be focusing on arson and arson's the problem and and you know this is just some firebugs um, causing all this devastation when when this is such a pivotal moment for Australia and for the world actually to take to sit up and take notice that climate change is happening and it's happening on a devastating scale um, and it's time to talk about it and it's time to do something about it. It's not time to deflect and talk about other things that are not relevant right now. Um, and for me, that was just like, that was just so, so disheartening. And it's, and it was so difficult being inside and actually being part of that deception um, that I couldn't, I actually couldn't sleep at night and I, I couldn't, um, I couldn't do my job. And it really affected me and um, to the point where I felt that I had to actually take an action and, um, and speak out and, and do something drastic. Um, and um, and get the conversation going because certainly that wasn't happening from from the publications um, that I was working for. Yeah, and um, so you had resigned earlier, and you were just waiting. Um, you had to do six more weeks mm -hmm. before you before you so finished I, up. Because I was a commercial finance manager, um, I had an eight week notice period um, just before Christmas. I had resigned. Um, because I had a, it was a conflict of, with my values working for News Corp. And um, when I came back from my holidays um, over Christmas, uh, you know, it just, it just was taken to a whole new scale, a whole new level with the, with the arson, pushing this arson agenda. Um, and uh, yeah, I just really couldn't work those last six weeks. Did you find any camaraderie amongst your coworkers, and did you did did you let anyone know that you worked with what you were going to do? No, no, I didn't. No, um, like, look, I mean, there was certainly some colleagues that um, I had spoken to about climate change that you know felt felt the same way, um, and and yeah, there's there's definitely there's definitely support within within the walls of News Corp for, um, for um, you know, just acknowledging climate change for now. And, and then we need to start doing something about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so can you take us through the, the day itself? Um, the day I started the day, um, I woke up really early, just um, feeling like I had this heavy weight on my shoulders that I needed I really needed to do something and um, the time was now uh, because it was such a hot topic. And um, I wrote the email in the morning before coming into work. Um, I talked about it with my partner on the way in and, um, and 
yeah, and then sort of that whole morning, I I, I basically um, just did some edits to the email, um, you know, typing in all the distribution lists that I could possibly find. <laughs> it wasn't just news all staff because I wasn't sure if that was going to work. Um, it was any distribution list I could find within the walls of News Corp. I also typed in each of the executives' names um, in, individually Amazing. just to make sure that it would go to every single executive. Um, you know, if you're going to do something, you may as well make sure you do it 150%. Um, and then it probably took me, I don't know, 20 minutes to hit that send button from the time that I had done all my final touches and um, typed in everything. And um, yeah, I got to say that moment of hitting send um, was like, yeah, one of the scariest moments of my life. Uh, and, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just really glad that I did that because, um, because it needed to be done. And what happened right after? Um, right after not a lot happened. Uh, I just saw people kind of opening it. I could see some screens <laughs> and I could see people opening it. And then I started getting like ping, uh, Google Hangouts um, messaging, messaging me um, to say, wow, that was brave and congratulations and um, well done. And um, I mean, it was all positive. It was all positive messages that I got from, I got lots of emails as well. Um, and then my phone rang and it was um, actually someone from the SMH who got it. Um, that was within minutes. Like I hadn't even, <clears throat> wow. I hadn't even left my desk. So it was my desk phone that rang, um, I guess, because my number was on the bottom. So I, th I think the email was actually leaked within minutes yeah. of me wow. sending from multiple sources. Um, and yeah, and then I just thought, well, I guess I've said that I, I'm going to leave and stop working here. So I, I should probably do what I've said and pack up my things. And I started walking out, um, out the building and um, our finance director kind of caught me and um, he wanted um, to just have a word with HR and um, just check that I was okay. Yeah. Wow. And there, and there were cheers in the newsroom you heard. Yeah, so a couple of people actually, yeah, I heard about, obviously I wasn't in the newsroom, so I work in finance. So um, yeah, a couple of um, people actually told me over Hangouts that there were cheers in the newsrooms. Um, I don't know which newsrooms, but yeah, that's what they said. Amazing. Yeah, which was really heartening to hear that. Um, and that yeah. shows, you know, that shows the support um, and shows the feeling within, mm. within News Corp actually of mm. journalism. Mm. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and 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 what are you doing now? What's post news call? Now I'm working on my I'm working on my small business that I've set up with my partner. Um, it's called Work at Spaces. We're an e-commerce hub and um, serviced office provider. Um, obviously, through COVID, it's been pretty tough, but um, yeah. but we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, and actually, demand has increased significantly. Um, and we're expanding. Um, it's a very exciting business um, to be working with lots of small businesses um, in the e-commerce space. Um, that are Where are you located? Alexandria and Sydney. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I used, yeah. To, I used to live in Erskineville, so I know it really well. Oh, cool, great, cool. Great yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a really nice location. Yeah. Oh well, that's great, and and th thank you so much for your time, Emily. It's 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 really great to that that people like you are, are brave and make a stand when they see such uh, these moral contradictions at play. Uh, we, we really need more people like you. So thank you for taking the time to come on our program. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yes. it.
change the color of my hair But the direction of a life Was it gonna take poor Deborah there? Now there's trouble with the law Her boyfriend's on the floor Saying Whoa! Everything's okay And made it something similar to despair People don't know How to be happy in the sprawl It's a monochrome world, she says Black by urban malls Trouble anymore. It's the mind that's born. The Deborah says, Whoa, now and then everything's okay. Rolled away from loneliness and made it something similar to despair. And the police and the planners and the teachers helped take her there. Hello everyone, I'm Julian. I'm Chris and we're from Climb for Change. And we've got actions that you can take right now. So the handing down of the budget last week has been seen as a missed opportunity to embrace a clean-led economic recovery. One that could have seen a boost in regional jobs, reduction in emissions, and also set Australia on a path to become a clean energy superpower. It is confirmed Australia is now clearly falling behind other countries in climate action, as it chooses to invest in its future in fossil fuel. If you want to take action on this issue and many others, get in contact with Climate for Change's MP engagement group, and we will help you engage your MP and make a difference. Over to you, Julian. Thanks, Chris. The Melbourne-based Energy Transitions Hub has got a couple of terrific online events coming up. Wednesday 21st October at 7pm, Fight for Planet A and our big weather star Craig Rucastle will discuss the economics of zero carbon living. Then on Wednesday 28th October, tune in to hear Dr Gemma Green talk about peer-to-peer energy trading and find out more about what the uberfication of electricity looks like. Search online for Energy Transitions Hub events and you can register for both these sessions. So thanks again from Julian. And Chris. And make sure you head over to climateforchange.org.au and sign up to the Climate Update for more news and action. We'll see you all next week. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a footnote bombs fly on the road and I had like this fist with a carrot and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. 
I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. An important message from the Victorian Government about coronavirus. To manage coronavirus and save lives, immediate action is required. This means if you can stay home, you must stay home. Yes, it's a major disruption to your lives, but this disruption today will save the lives of many Victorians tomorrow. If you think you may have coronavirus, call the government's hotline on 1800 675 398 or visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Victorian Government, managing this together. A 3CR supporter. That was Julian and Chris from Climate for Change. Um, thank you so much for listening through to the Battle of Beedaloo. Uh, we were listening to uh, Dan Robbins from uh, Protect Country Alliance. We we're also talking with Dominic Nichols from Mimmel Land Rangers. And last up was Emily Townsend, um, who resigned from News Corp in a spectacular way. Thank you so much to, uh, to to Viv and to the rest of the team, Andy. Thank you to everyone at 3CR. This has been the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show and the program was The Battle for Beedaloo. I'm Kurt Johnson. Yeah, 